Episode number 10 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode will be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin, I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today is writer and Japanese translator Matt Alt. Matt's latest book is called Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. He also recently wrote sort of a companion article, I'd say, uh, for Vice called How Gunpei Yokoi Reinvented Nintendo. And, well, we'll take any excuse we can around here to talk about Gunpei Yokoi. <laughs> At least I will. Matt, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's set the stage here a little bit, because your whole book is about stage setting in Japan, basically, and providing right. a bunch of context to uh, how all of this craziness happened. Um so set the stage a little bit for us. What is Nintendo in the 1960s? Well, Nintendo in the 60s is not the Nintendo that we know and love today. They're kind of adrift. Uh, they are a producer of uh game cards called Hanafuda, which are used in a traditional form of gambling. And the president of Nintendo is kind of casting around somewhat, you might even say flailing around, trying to bring his company not only into the modern era, but also to find the big hit that will make them the big name that he wants it to be. So they're doing all sorts of things. They're famously, uh, he even launched a love hotel service and a taxi service. He was selling instant rice and instant noodles and all sorts of things that we wouldn't really associate with Nintendo today. And uh, chief among those were toys, physical toys like knockoffs of Lego blocks or all sorts of other things like that that were uh, sold through toy stores in Japan and uh, kind of established Nintendo as a toy maker, but not exactly an innovator because most of them were really knockoffs or one step removed from other companies' products. The one exception were the products made by a certain gentleman named Gunpei Yokoi, who yeah. was, yes, somebody who I think you guys like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he, I mean, Gunpei Yokoi is obviously, uh, I feel like a pretty well-known name now. He made the Game Boy, he made the Game & Watch, all kinds of stuff like that. But um, he kind of ended up at Nintendo accidentally, right? Like it's... He almost ended up at Nintendo, and Nintendo is what it is today because Gunpei Koi was kind of a bad student. Yeah, we, <laughs> like, well, nin Nintendo's Nintendo's early history in particular is like a string of like these incredibly, incredibly lucky hires that President Yamauchi made. Um, and if if he hadn't, it's very easy to imagine Nintendo not having exploded into the into popularity like it did. And Gunpei Koi is the first one of those. Yeah, so he's he's the smart guy who was, you know, he went to college for electrical engineering. He's a smart guy, but uh, all of his friends are getting the cool jobs and he's kind of striking out. So, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about how he ends up at a... Uh, at Nintendo yeah. and what he does there. And this information comes mainly from his autobiography, which unfortunately hasn't been translated into English, but it's available in Japan. And uh, he talks in there about how he wasn't a particularly ambitious guy. And his basic modus operandi, so to speak, was that he didn't want to leave Kyoto. Um, he wanted to stay close to home and look for a quiet job that he could do uh, until retirement. And that would have been fine with him. And the job that he ended up applying for and getting 
was a job maintaining the Hanafuda presses at Nintendo, uh, which was a well-known local uh, company in Kyoto at the time. I mean, they had a very long history, as you know. They've been you know in business since the 1800s. But they weren't seen as a particularly like high tech or like ambitious place to be. And, you know, in fact, the job that Yokoi took wasn't even an electrical engineering job. It's basically like one step above like a janitorial job, you know, <laughs> like taking care of these old presses, keeping them oiled, cleaning up around them, like that kind of thing. So it's, it's a kind of interesting start for this guy. It's funny you say that because the 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 easiest way to upset Kelsey Lewin is to say that. <laughs> Gunpei Yokoi was hired at Nintendo as a janitor. <laughs> he didn't say that, though. He did. He said he was a step above a janitor. He didn't, it's but funny. it's in my notes. My notes say something that Kelsey once told me is that Yokoi used to be a janitor, and I thought that'd be pretty funny, but we already- <laughs> <laughs> maybe Maybe like a maintenance guy, you know what I mean? Like, is, is a better way of putting it. I mean, he wasn't yeah, like swabbing out toilets or anything like that. No, no. There's a, there was a, a really popular, like, infographic thing that was passed around a lot and I think is still being passed around that um, I like to point to as like sometimes people don't you know either through mistranslations or misunderstandings of something like they get an idea about something and it sounds like a good story and it gets passed around and that was one of those it does I mean that's a great story, right? If he was a janitor and sure, 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 janitor to creating the Game Boy, yeah, that's, yeah, this like awesome. lowly, uneducated, but no, he's a, he's a yeah, I know he's educated huge. electrical he's, engineer. Like, he's not only is he well educated, he's actually, I mean, he's very talented because he uh, he famously won this like model railroad competition when he was a kid. Like he built this really elaborate model train setup, and it was so apparently cool that Tokyo's big model train magazine came down to film it. So, you know, he was a guy who had a lot of creative potential, even as a little kid. This wasn't some kind of like, you know, he wasn't like behind the curve or anything like that. He was just kind of a unambitious guy, you know, in, in the beginning anyway. He just he just kind of wanted to find a job and, you know, kind of live quietly. And as we he all know, a, things didn't quite go that way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's and very much a garage tinkerer. Yeah. Right. One of my favorite stories, actually, from the uh, the book that you're referencing is autobiography. And, you know, it, because because this is all sort of like straight from his mouth, it's and we have very few sources from this guy. Um, it, it's hard to say exactly how much of this is true and how much is embellishment. We can get more into that later. But um, my favorite one of my favorite stories from there is how he said that he thinks he invented the uh, car eight track player like uh, three years before it came to market and how yeah. he used to prank people by playing recordings of baseball games that had already happened and roll his window down. And <laughs> yeah, it's, so. uh, it's, I, I guess that's what boomers did for fun back in the sixties uh, and seventies uh, playing recordings <laughs> to each other uh, to, to freak each other out. Yeah. There's a lot of that in his book. It's, it's kind of, and, and I don't mean to paint him as like a passive aggressive guy at all. Cause I don't think he was, he's a, he's a very, you know, skilled, you know, person, but you know, he's like, why? Well, he basically, he, he says that he invented Donkey Kong, for instance. Um, he came up with the core ideas and gameplay for it. Um, and it was Miyamoto who, who got credit because he came up with the characters, uh, which, you know, is, is one way of looking at it, you know, it's, uh, uh and I don't think there's any dispute that Yokoi was key in working on that, but there, you see, that's the great thing about his autobiography and we'll get into this a little bit later. But one of the he wrote that autobiography after he had retired from Nintendo, I'm pretty sure. And that gave him the freedom to say things that he wouldn't have been able to say when he was a salary man 
you know, on the Nintendo payroll. And uh, you must not have had to sign an NDA all the way back. Yeah, I I doubt it. (laughs) I doubt it. Well, you know, after, you know, famously after he he left Nintendo in 1995 or six, I think it was. It was right after the uh, the the big flop of the virtual boy. And there were rumors, a lot of rumors going around that he had been, you know, forced out. You know, he had been fired by Nintendo and there was a lot of bad blood. And he wrote this. It's basically the other piece of information that people always quote about him in addition to the autobiography, because he he wasn't somebody who gave a lot of interviews. He wrote this long essay for a big Japanese literary magazine explaining, no, I don't hate Nintendo. No, there's no bad blood. I'm just, you know, 50 something and it's time for me to move on and make, you know, I I don't want to be working for somebody else. I want to work for myself from now on. So, uh, you know, and once he did that, that gave him a lot more freedom to talk about stuff, including things that happened at Nintendo. Well, let's go back to, you know, his sort of emergence at Nintendo, right? So he's, uh, I don't know, wh- wh- what do you do with the the printing presses? You oil them or something? <laughs> like that's, that's kind of what he's up to. Well, yeah, I mean, they used like mulberry bark or something like this really, really high quality Japanese paper and glue and like all sorts of stuff. These aren't, these aren't like Pokemon cards like they're thicker they're like almost like cardboard so I guess there was like a a kind of a a bigger machine involved in making them it was kind of uh, complicated and so he eventually sort of gets the attention of uh, President Yamauchi just from kind of getting bored and screwing around is my read right yeah so he was you know he's a really smart guy and he's a really talented guy so keeping these machines running these like ancient machines running wasn't really using a lot of his brain power so in his abundant downtime he started messing around in the machine shop and making toys and the first one he made is this kind of looney tune style accordion accordion arm that would like you know you'd move two levers on the bottom and it would extend out like a like a big you know arm in front of you and he was playing around with this. Yamauchi found out about it and called him into the office. And he thought he was going to get fired for, you know, screwing around on on company time. And it turned out Yamauchi loved it and wanted him to make it into a product. And so Yamauchi that's what he did. Yamauchi loved things? Believe it or not. Well, he loved money. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe to say he loved money or the prospect of making it. And in this weird contraption that Yokoi had come up with, Yamauchi saw money. And he was right. He was right. It turned out to be a big hit that was sold under the name Ultra Hand. Uh, Ultra being a, a big keyword back in the in sixties Japan. Ultraman, you know, Ultra Seven, mm. all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, he had a bunch of toys that used the word Ultra. Ultra yeah, and yeah. Ultra and as code. as an aside, that comes right now. that comes <laughs> from the Olympics. There was a uh, a gymnast, a Japanese gymnast, who used some technique called, I think, the Ultra B or something like that, and that was taken up in the newspapers at the time in like 1964, 65. And she was, I think she meddled. And because of that, like people, like it, it established this con this context where ultra meant something really powerful. And so in the years to come, it was used in all sorts of places. Wow. It's pre Ultraman. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, that's fascinating. Ultra, the, the ultra, ultra B or ultra C or whatever. I'm not remembering exactly, but it was a gymnastics move. It was an athletic move. <laughs> Oh, I'm disappointed because I was picturing ultra like B E E like the 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 bug. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Only ultra gymnasts and ultra men, and I think there's an occasional ultra woman in there. There's an ultra mother, I think. But we're off topic here. We're talking about Ultraman. We were talking <laughs> about Yokoi. So, although there were, it's it's interesting. Nintendo was actually making 
licensed Ultraman products back in 1966, 67. I, I don't know if Yokoi designed those, but I would be shocked if he didn't. And at one point, um, the the company that was most famous for making Ultraman toys in Japan, there was this company called Marusan that invented the idea of making action figures of all of the kaiju from the Ultraman series, all the monsters. And they ran into a lot of financial hardship and were about to go out of business. And their bank told them to meet with Nintendo with the idea that they would merge. So it ended up not happening because the two, Yamauchi and the president of Marasan were two really big personalities. But it's really interesting to imagine a future, you know, that didn't happen where Nintendo merged with what was one of Japan's biggest toy makers at the time and became like a toy company instead of a game company. Um, but that didn't yeah. happen. Well, and and I mean, you you mentioned that they're, um, you know, they kind of become a game company, but this is true even at the time of the Ultra Hand, right? It's just more that they're not so much creating games as they are maybe. Well, they they import what what is it like Twister? I think they, they yeah they yeah. imported Twister. Yeah, they had a, they had a big. I you know when I when I interviewed uh, Masayuki Uemura who was the gentleman who actually was the engineer on the on the Famicom. Uh, and he came into Nintendo around 1971 or two, and he told me that they used to have this giant warehouse that was just full of imported Western games and toys that, you know, employees would go in there and play around with with the hopes of getting an inspiration to make the next big thing. You know, Nintendo was really a fad chaser back then. And, you know, because of lax copyright laws, especially in Japan at the time, you know, a lot of their stuff was kind of derivative, like one step removed from other companies' stuff. And certainly in the 60s and 70s, there was zero, zero, less than zero indication that they would ever become like a prime mover and shaker in the toy industry or the game industry or anything like that. So is the Ultra Hand kind of Nintendo's first original? game yeah well that's the thing you know like yokoi didn't see it as a game he just saw it as a gizmo or a gadget and yamauchi told him you got to make this into a game so we can sell it um and yokoi kind of racked his brains and came up with this idea of putting suction cups on the end of it and that you you would like stack balls and cups and things like that but i i don't know how many kids actually played it as a game do you know what i mean i think they were just kind of probably smacking each other in the face or like you know pinching each other with it or you know doing stuff kids would do with a giant extensible hand well it's it's the mousetrap scenario i had mousetrap the board game i've never played mousetrap the board game but (laughs) i have set that trap off a million times oh sure yeah yeah um so that i mean I don't know if, you know, history is this clean, but it it kind of strikes me that this may be the beginning of, of Nintendo, maybe not necessarily going in a new direction, but starting to at least try to, to innovate in the game space, right? Well, Yamauchi was toy really... space, maybe. Is sure, sure. Yeah. Well, Yamauchi knew a good thing when he when he had it, you know, when he saw it. So, like, he, he basically promoted Yokoi from, you know oiler of this clanking tin machine to uh, like a, a head of, you know, research and development. And Yokoi over the course of the seventies started making all of these wacky wild toys for Nintendo. Some of them, which were hits, some of which weren't, but he was the kind of prime innovator of Nintendo's products throughout the 1970s. Mm. And you get some of his early, um, some of his philosophies that kind of show up really early in some of these toys. Uh, People like to talk a lot, or at least 
maybe just I like to talk a lot about <laughs> um, uh, his philosophy of lateral thinking with withered technology. Right, you know, right. The thing that the Game Boy is most famous for. But you see this really early on with a lot of his stuff. Uh, my favorite example is the Lefty RX, which is this RC car that um, he developed because RC cars were getting big and they were really expensive to make. So his his solution to that was make it only turn left right. and we don't have to like figure right. out steering. <laughs> it right, only right. goes one way. And they were able to cut an enormous amount of cost because, you know, for, uh, for so many kids, um, and obviously this held extremely true with the Game Boy, which we'll get to, but even back in their toy days, like they just need something they can afford that works. Yeah. And I think Yokoi was a genius of not letting perfection get in the way of, you know, accomplishing something. You know, he he was somebody who really understood how kids played and that things didn't have to necessarily be cutting edge. But, you know, I don't think he had he had like he's really well known today for that philosophy, which you just mentioned, which is lateral thinking with withered technology, which basically means don't chase the cutting edge. Look for established gimmicks or technologies or techniques around you and think of new ways to use them that haven't been used before. You know, basically look for new applications of existing stuff. Don't like try to, you know, reinvent the wheel. And I I wonder if that came from a huge failure of his in the 1970s when he invented the light gun system. Uh, we all know the light gun from, you know, the Nintendo entertainment system and, and from, you know, Rob, the robotic operating buddy whose eyes use a, a version of that. But he invented that in the seventies for the system called laser clay, which was this, uh, you'd use these really realistic looking rifles to shoot clay, uh, projections of clay pigeons on, uh, on, on like kind of movie screen sized screens that, and they would, they modified bowling alleys. Uh, Nintendo had this whole like conversion kit that they sold to bowling alleys where, hey, are your customers bored of bowling? Well, you can install this laser clay system and turn your bowling alley into a virtual skeet shooting thing. And they invested so much money in it. It was the way that Yokoi invented this technology and they thought it was going to be a big cash cow. And then there was like this big uh, oil crisis and Japan went kind of into recession. Nobody bought it and they went deep, deep, deep into the red. And they almost, you know, it, it was like a huge failure, probably monetarily even bigger than Virtual Boy. And a really big problem for Nintendo and for Yokoi, who was kind of sent off into the wilderness, so to speak, inside the company, like, oh, that guy nearly killed us. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to think, well, first of all, that that's, you know, almost a, a prehistoric Nintendo video game in, in a weird way, right? Because it's, it is a a projector and, and a controller. It's not, it's not oh, a totally. screen, but it's, you know, it's sort of the first hint of Nintendo video games, but it's also, totally. it's also if what you're kind of proposing is true, that that's the impetus for lateral thinking with withered technology. I mean, that sets the stage for the Nintendo that we know today, even right. Like just in things like just, just even the technology, you know, in, in their consoles tends to be, you know, not the cutting edge graphic yeah. chip. They tend to take off the shelf parts, but you know, even if we're even something a little more direct would be something like the screen on the 3ds, right. Was just this, right. like this crappy 3d effect that, 
uh, cell phones were already done with at that time. And oh Nintendo- yeah, totally. and, you know, young <laughs> young people might not remember this or have been alive for this, but the the screen on the original Game Boy, like the 1989, 1990 Game yeah. Boy, was hideous. It was terrible. I mean, it was a really bad screen. It was like they definitely used off the shelf parts for that one because because right. other companies right. like Atari, you know, were using these like at the time incredibly cutting edge color LCDs. And uh, the Nintendo's Game Boy looked really sickly in comparison to that. But as we all know, who won that war, the Lynx or the Game Boy? That's, uh, (laughs) you know. California Games or Pokemon. Yes, exactly. Slime World. Todd's (laughs) Adventures in Slime World. That was my jam. (laughs) What a great game that was. Um, But I'm dating myself here. Uh, But yeah, so, you know, the, the... after Laser Clay, when Yokoi was kind of nobody was listening to him as much anymore, is when he ironically came up with the thing that would really set Nintendo on a new path. That's when he came up with the idea for the Game & Watch, you know, which is the, the precursor for all of the kind of portable game systems to come. And it was that was actually another that was a, that's a key example of withered technology, uh, lateral thinking with withered technology, because it's based on a calculator. Yeah, so tell the, I mean, I think most people have probably heard the origin story of this by now, but um, just set the stage a little bit. Tell tell us kind of how he came up with yeah. this uh, Game & Watch idea. Sometime around seven, 1977 or 1978, Yokoi was on a, a bullet train and he was riding and, you know, now everybody has all sorts of gadgets to keep them, you know, occupied during long trips. But back then you basically either had a newspaper, a manga, or that was it. And it was, you know, on these long two, three hour trips between Kyoto and Tokyo, he'd watch like salary men just kind of desolatorily poking at their calculators, like desperately trying to entertain themselves over the long trip. And he realized that if he came up with a device that was small and looked like a calculator, and this was the original idea that salary men could play games without getting busted by their bosses. Yeah, that part of it was that he thought it would be like it's embarrassing for an adult to be playing a game in public. So it needs to be something that's small and discreet enough yeah. that you can just kind of like have it between your legs and, you know, yeah, I'm not <laughs> kind of sure. hide that you're I'm playing. I'm not sure it. it was embarrassing. Like Japan has always had this like really stellar sense of play. Um, in the right context, like I, and that's exactly what was going on here. He was looking to give people a chance to play in a context they weren't supposed to play, which is like, oh, their boss is sitting right next to them, or they're supposed to be at work. You know, like what you do in your free time, nobody really, if you want to play around and do things, nobody would see that as being weird or transgressive, which is why, for instance, pachinko was always so big in Japan, you know, and uh, like arcades full of pinball machines and stuff are always really big in Japan. So Yokoi's like real genius here was coming up with a device that let you blur the lines between where you were supposed to play and not. And I also think it's really key that he's aimed it at adults. Back in the 70s, everybody thought video games were going to be for adults. And that was it. Yeah. So he uh, he what eventually ended up happening was, you know, nobody would listen to him at Nintendo, but he was shanghaied into being uh, President Yamauchi's driver for a day when Yamauchi's driver got sick with the flu or something like that. And with Yamauchi trapped in the back of the car, Yokoi was able to, like, evangelize this idea of making a kind of portable tiny video game using uh, calculator technology. And as luck would have it, Yamauchi, he didn't say anything. He kind of pretended to ignore Yokoi, uh, but he was on his way to a luncheon or a dinner where he sat next to the guy who ran Sharp, the big Japanese electronics company that made most of Japan's calculators at the time. 
And uh, he started talking to him. And a few weeks later, Yokoi got called back into the office again, probably thinking he's going to get fired again. And lo and behold, uh, you know, President Yamauchi's like, here's President Sharp. Get to work on your idea. <laughs> and uh, they did. And that's where that, you know, the first game they came out with was a ball, you know, that uh, a game and watch, you know, where you're kind of this clown juggling balls and the buttons on the side of the screen let you move the arms up and down. And these are, this is using like LCD technology. This isn't like a, you know, a, a, a active it's like a passive LCD, like a calculator. So like the, you had to put the images, like pre-bake them into the screen kind of, right? Right. And yeah, and it's, if you've played, you know, an LCD game from the eighties or nineties, I mean, Game & Watch is where that started as far as I know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, and that sparked so many competitors, but that was the first real video gaming boom. And this is a thing. So he invented it for adults, but it took off hugely among kids. And this was like the big video game boom among kids in like the 1980-ish to like 80, like it was 79 to 81, I think. There was just like a a time period around 80 80 to 83, maybe. That was like just a huge boom for these game and watches and so many variants came out. And it's funny too, because he originally was like, okay, I made ball, that that was good. Uh, What's next? Yeah, right. Yamuchi's like, well, obviously you make like a hundred more variants, exactly. dude. That's <laughs> ball two. And you know, a- along the way, you know, Yokoi, you know, to his, you know, in- innovated all sorts of things. So, like one of the later, one of the the key innovations that came out of Game and Watch was when Yokoi uh, made, I think it was on the Donkey Kong uh, Game and Watch, which was a, a conversion, so to speak, of of Donkey Kong, and it had a. Uh, directional pad on it the the plus shaped directional pad i might be getting it wrong that it's donkey kong but it was definitely one oh, right. of, is, am i right see yeah. look at this i'm always i'm, I'm on, on fire uh the yeah, they needed something to to feel like a the joystick in the arcade game right? yes and they yeah. need and it was just up, up until that point they'd all been buttons you know what i mean like all of the if, if you remember those early game and watches and i do uh, it was literally, you know, ball, like the octopus game, which you might remember. God, I love mm-hmm. that one. There was like a parachute one. It's all just buttons moving left and forth, uh, left and right on the bottom of the screen. Uh, so the D-pad actually made it more like an arcade gaming experience. And that's it's basically the D-pad that we know and love today. Oh, yeah. I mean, the 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 Famicom controller, the NES controller. I mean, it's I think it's literally the same mold. No, it, it is. Was It was spare parts from game and watches when they were yes. messing around with yeah, yeah. and you, you interviewed uh masuki yurimura right yes. so you uh did you get any of that kind of uh yeah he told me actually he told me that the first like prototype of the famicon which is probably like a bunch of you know circuit boards sitting on a table they actually used game and watches like they they ran cables they they hacked the game and watch and ran cables from that into the the proto console to use as controllers uh so they actually literally use those like to kind of mock up what the what the final column experience would be and, and then uh, they just ended up being like hey this actually feels pretty good we just yeah like yeah definitely i mean i guess so i don't i wasn't like why didn't you use a joystick i probably should have asked him that I, you know, to, this is funny like you always have these you always think up these questions later afterwards to us like the the, <laughs> the idea of a, of a nintendo entertainment system that used anything but like that plus shape d-pad is just inconceivable right but you know what's your frame of reference back then it's going to be yeah. stuff like the atari in the yes. u.s right so and i love yeah. that joystick that like rubber covered like that 
box you're holding in your hand with like, it was a stick, you know what I mean? Like it was really a stick, but it didn't have a lot of sensitivity to it. And I think no. that's where the, the D pad really changed was a game changer. Yeah, I couldn't play Mario with that stick. I'd no, although I, wasn't there a Mario for the 2600? I, I, there was definitely one for the ColecoVision. Uh, there was Mario Bros, as in the arcade game. Right. But, you know, right, not Super right. Mario. No. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what Nintendo is at this point, because Game & Watch isn't really their first video game. And I, and I, and I, would, uh, I would assume that uh, Yokoi's R&D division is, is probably the group tapped for their early arcade experience. Yes. Right? So let's, to set the stage here, around 1978 is when, uh, sp- in, in 1978, that's when Space Invaders comes out and sparks this tremendous boom for video gaming. Uh, in Japan. There had been kind of hit games before that, like Breakout and Pong, but Space Invaders really kind of was a fever. It like took it to another level. And because at the time there were no copyright or trademark laws covering software, all of these other companies rushed out with their own kind of one step removed or even just direct copies of Space Invaders. And Nintendo was no exception. Like Yamauchi just wanted to cash in on this thing. And in my interview with uh, Uemura, uh, the engineer of uh, the, the, the Famicom, he told me that Yamauchi bought a bunch of Space Invaders machines and put them in HQ at in Kyoto Nintendo and basically told the employees to come up with something like this. And Uemura recalls being completely annoyed because instead of people studying it, like these lines formed is like, like basically the entire company got sucked into playing it and like all productivity ground to a halt for like a week or two. And like the engineers could, cause they wanted to get in and like take it apart. They wanted to like break the machines down and see how they were made. And they couldn't even get in to do that because there were so many, you know, uh, regular employees just, just like trying to play. Yeah. And uh, they did start making their own knockoffs of those games. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's maybe difficult to imagine just how, huge the invaders boom was but you know you mentioned other companies uh you know cloning them uh you know konami and snk basically get their start you know either cloning or or officially distributing uh space invaders like this really is sort of the start of the japanese video game industry it totally is and because space invaders is really the first arcade game that had characters in it and yeah. made gaming kind of more of a virtual experience than this kind of game of like sport. Like Pong and, and Breakout had been almost like barroom games, you know, like they were they were literally placed in bars when they were invented. And they were the kind of thing, you know, you had a couple beers and playing with your friends and then, you know, go back to having more beers or whatever. Um, space Invaders was actually kind of an immersive experience. You know, you're in this space war with these identifiable aliens that are really kind of charmingly drawn given that they're in a what like nine by nine pixel matrices um i mean they're still they're really like identifiable even today they're iconic you know Mm -hmm. uh taito uses them for their for their arcades uh to to mark their arcades in tokyo on the on the uh signs yeah it's unmistakable that the you know the one that they use uh, yeah the most part that crab i don't know what Yeah, yeah yeah Yeah, that, so yeah, that Nishikado, guy. yeah, and he and that guy who invented that, uh, uh, Tomohiro Nishikado, he uh, he was a real genius at, at just like kind of making something out of nothing. I mean, there's just it's like a black screen with like white, but yet he ma- he managed to make this like real kind of space experience. Anyway, so Space Invaders is huge. Nintendo is knocking it off. Everybody's knocking it off. And I found in my research for Pure Invention this 
uh, documentary from Japanese TV at the time where they're covering what they called the invader boom. And it really was a boom. Like there were uh, these things called invader rooms that sprung mm-hmm. up all over Tokyo where like it's literally an arcade filled with nothing but invader games. Adults are playing them, but kids are watching kind of eagerly from the sidelines and it starts to become the societal problem where like PTAs are like games are bad for kids. Keep kids out of these places. And in this case, they were probably right because most of these are, you know, invader rooms are full of adults drinking and smoking and like they weren't exactly kid friendly places. Um, Some of them were literally like in red light districts and stuff. And uh at any rate, there's so many knockoffs of the game going around that Taito starts like basically accusing the other game companies of ripping them off, which is really not something that was done back in time. And in this documentary, President Yamauchi is interviewed and is like, you know, I don't think you should even be allowed to patent a style of play at all. I think once one <laughs> video game company comes up with a really key game you know, mechanic, they should give it to all the other game companies because, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. We're all in this together, you know? So forget patents, forget (laughs) gameplay. It's all for everybody. You know, there's no such thing as copying. And, you know, and and then they, you know. And now Nintendo shuts down fan games. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? So like the the minute Nintendo, of course, we all know now that the minute Nintendo's Famicom became the premier game system in Japan, Yamauchi ran that project with an iron fist like he not only to the point of like you know taking legal action or he didn't even have to take legal action because he could basically blacklist you know people just by virtue of the fact oh you don't oh you support him well you can't make games for the famicom then bye you know it was it was basically behavior that would have been illegal in the united states i think um under kind of anti-monopoly laws and stuff but was (laughs) like allowed in japan and you know he yamauchi basically made game developers pay for the cost of manufacturing the cartridges through Nintendo factories, you know, with huge up. So there was all of these systems he put in place to ensure that Nintendo and only Nintendo was controlling the flow of content into Famicoms, which is a far cry from this interview in 1980. He's like, Hey man, information just wants to be free, you know? (laughs) And it's a, it's just a great moment and just goes to show you what a wild west the the game industry was in the in the 80s and what what like kind of a a copycat Nintendo was in the in the early in the late 70s um pre pre Donkey Kong I don't think anybody if you had if you had asked like the the most intelligent you know obs- and witty observer of the game industry in 1979 who's going to be the big player like a decade or two decades from now nobody would have said Nintendo Right. Nobody. They were they were a copier and a licensor of things. They, yes. I mean, they were just kind of I mean, they licensed Disney characters for playing cards. They were ripping off Breakout and ripping off Space Invaders yep. and ripping off. I mean, any any technology that looked profitable. And that's I mean, you can see that when, as you mentioned earlier, you have Yamauchi doing all these weird ventures like instant noodles and stuff. I mean, yes. he is literally just looking at things that are doing well it- and deciding he's going to do that, too. And, you know, just just to be clear, you know, I actually love Hiroshi Yamauchi. I think he's great. He's such a character. You know what I mean? And like he he was he had such a spirit, you know, he wasn't creative in the sense that like, you know, Miyamoto was or Gunpei Yokoi was, but he was a real artiste when it came to business. And that's why he's trying all these different things. You know, he's from from instant noodles and rice all the way up to like, oh, wow, tele- television games. That's that's an interesting new thing. And so he was he was a really forward looking guy. And. 
uh, you know, and apparently a very playful guy. Uemura, you know, when I interviewed him, uh, told me that he would often show up at employee weddings and like get down in the trenches playing Hanafuda with everyone. Uh, so he's a, you know, he's, he's a guy who appreciated play. Like we think of him wearing those kind of like, you know, half shaded sunglasses with the slicked back hair and being like, you know, come yes, kiss the ring kind of thing at Nintendo (laughs) in the, in the eighties and nineties. But, um, he was, he was definitely a guy who, who was not afraid to take risks and try new stuff. So and, that, that's that's the really cool thing about him. Um, and, I, and I don't know how true this is, but I remember from reading uh, David Chef's Game Over that he was the one who sort of sort of personally uh, put a yes no yes. Uh, stamp on 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 Famicom games, and he was not one who played games. He could just look at them and sort of understand if it might be a hit or not. Yes. Wait, David Chef's book? Are you talking about the book about how Nintendo enslaved America's yes. children <laughs> and zapped your, what is it? Stole your uh, dollars I, and I zapped. I have that first print over here somewhere. Zapped an entire industry. I love like, <laughs> literally every single subtitle. And I love Chef's book. I think I think that subtitle was foisted on him by an editor oh, somewhere. Oh, yeah. No doubt. Yeah. None of those that, things are true. Like America zapped its own industry. You know that that subtitle is what shut Nintendo <laughs> up for the rest of time. I yes, yeah, because <laughs> they really gave him a lot of access. Like, there's some there's some beautiful scenes in Chef's book, which is I believe out of print now, unfortunately, where he's like in Yamauchi's garden, you know, like or you know sitting down at headquarters there, and they don't give interviews to anybody now. Yeah, anybody. Yeah. Um, that was it. It's, that was our was, one chance. It's yeah, that was it. And Chef, you screwed it up for us, man. No, I'm just kidding. It's a great book. It's it's actually despite and when it was re, when it was reprinted later, they took that off and it's like how Nintendo, you know, I forget conquered the world or something. R- raised your children correctly. Yes, exactly. How how Nintendo made your children better children. Uh, and re and you know, reinvigorated the American game industry. But um Yes. So, and also, you know, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. No, you're, I think the, the, the other thing I wanted to, to make to, to the point I wanted to make is so this is true of Yokoi's Game and Watch. It's true of these, uh, uh, Invader game knockoffs. And it's going to be true of Donkey Kong. Nintendo didn't actually even make any of these games. Yeah. They came up with ideas and then they contracted with another company. Uh, or uh, multiple other companies. In the case of the Game & Watch, Yokoi came up with the ideas for the gameplay, but it was actually Sharp who implemented them. Uh, and when it came to their arcade games, the, they subcontracted with a company called Ikegami Tsushinki, which is still in business today. They make like uh, a, a pro-grade, broadcast-grade uh, cameras and like equipment for television stations. But it was actually Ikegami who did all of the wiring and and actually made these ideas of Yokoi and later Miyamoto come to life. Um, they didn't make their own video games. They just well, kind of they, came they up they with the, the ideas. They did software engineering as well, right? Well, they, they came up with the, you know, they came up with the gameplay and they had some kind of idea, but I think even the software engineering was right. outsourced to, to, to Ikegami. Yeah, at and, least for a while, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that somebody like Miyamoto, uh, Miyamoto Shigeru would never have been hired at Taito or Namco or Atari. Uh, he was a graphic right. designer. 
he didn't have any background at all in game uh, design or anything like that. He was just a guy who had like a lot of, you know, he's a very creative guy, um, but he didn't have that background. And at that time, it was believed that only programmers could make good games. Right. They didn't have, I mean, and I guess this certainly doesn't really exist anymore, but there wasn't like, we're going to hire the idea guy. Yeah. 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 No. So you had to be somebody who was like a, a crack programmer, like whether you're Nishikado who made Space Invaders or I forget her name, the really awesome woman who made Centipede. Um, you know, you had to be somebody who was a, a programmer and a designer and a sound person, like kind of all at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, those people are unicorns. Like they exist, but they're not really any way for a company, for an industry to grow because you have to wait for somebody like that to come along. And so inadvertently, Yokoi kind of came up with this more of an assembly line strategy where it's like, we well, you know what, we have the ideas. So we'll come up with the ideas. And, and even when I say we, I mean Miyamoto. <laughs> We have this we have this young guy who's like kind of a cool designer and stuff. Let's, you know, let's let's use his designs and let's let's let him kind of think up and then outsource all of the hard stuff to Ikigami. And uh, that was a kind of revolutionary way of making games back then, I think. You know, it wasn't how it was done anywhere else. The idea that that a game, the person who is best suited to design a game wasn't necessarily the best person to make a game, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I think that might be true. I mean, the the notion of a video game designer, you know, yes. was not I I don't know if it was necessarily invented in this moment, but I mean, it very well could be. I'm racking my brain trying to think of other examples. I think yeah, well, I mean, the there's lots part, of Yeah, if you're talking about somebody who is a designer didn't actually work on the programming, you know what I mean? Right. I, even like going as far back as like, I mean, I guess you could say like the original breakout was based on an idea by Nolan Bushnell and then like Steve Jobs and, and Steve Wozniak, Wozniak actually made it. But I don't know. Right. Bushnell I, don't think, was, I don't think Iwatani did the like engineering of Pac-Man, but you know, I think he did at least, uh, you know, the, the, yeah. the pixel art and stuff like that. Well, Nishikado certainly did the engineering of, of Space Invaders. Right. right. It was the only one who knew how. Though. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you you have this situation where um, the it's kind of a quantum leap and it all started with a Popeye cartoon. That's the, the really interesting thing, which is that Yokoi like had seen he and Popeye was really big in Japan. Like it was before Japan's first domestically produced anime, which is called Astro Boy, came out in 1963. They showed imported cartoons like Tom and Jerry and stuff like that on Japanese TV. And Popeye was huge. Uh, it started broadcasting like in the late fifties. So, you know, Yokoi would have been, you know, pretty young when he first saw it and it was kept, you know, just like in America, they kept showing it in reruns and stuff like that. And that idea that like this, this kind of hero type guy could eat something and power up ended up like having this huge impact on that first wave of designers. It's where Iwatani got the idea for the Energizer pills for Pac-Man. And it's where uh, Yokoi got the idea for Donkey Kong in the sense that there was this Popeye episode where Popeye and Bluto are like fighting in a, in a, like this unfinished building while olive oil kind of sleepwalks through it. And they're trying to like both protect her and both, you know, knock each other off the girders. And you can literally see like where Donkey Kong comes from in this, you know, and, and then initially Donkey Kong started as a licensed Popeye game, uh, famously, 
Yokoi wanted to make a Popeye game. And when that fell through, they decided, you know, they couldn't get the license at that point. They eventually did for a different game. But they decided, well, whatever, let's just use the mechanic. And instead of Bluto being Bluto, he can be this big gorilla, you know, and instead of Popeye being Popeye, he can be this this little plumber jump man guy. You know, yeah, even of, if it's not directly Popeye, I mean, clearly the inspiration is oh, yeah. Western cartoons. Yeah. Well, it's it's called a dream walking and you can actually find it on YouTube. If you yeah. look up Popeye, a dream walking. And if you watch that episode, you can just compl- Oh, girders. Wow. There's like a flaming, there's like a flaming oil barrel, you know, like whatever. It's like all of these <laughs> little the moments. Yeah. The pieces are there. And uh, uh, so Yokoi is the one who gave that kind of design brief to Miyamoto and uh, Miyamoto took it and ran with it. But that was like their big kind of transformative evolutionary moment where Nintendo created something totally new for the first time. Although it was initially intended to be this licensed Popeye game. That's the really funny thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they accidentally made something new. They were forced (laughs) into making. Oops. We innovated. (laughs) (laughs) Something that we have in our archives here, and uh, this might be a coincidence, I don't know, but we have an issue of the magazine Popeye, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh, yeah. Um, which, I mean, is it fair to say is basically a Western fashion magazine at that time? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's still around today. Yeah. And it's an issue from mid-1980. And the guy on the cover is meant to be a construction worker. And he's got blue overalls and a red shirt and a red oh. hat and a mustache. <laughs> Are you sure he's not the prime minister of Japan? He's a construction worker. <laughs> like it strikes me as a magazine that's saying this is what a construction worker looks like. Right, 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 right. And it's yeah, because they they basically they basically rewrote the the you know the book on what plumbers and construction workers look like with, with Donkey Kong, you know. It's uh, no, this is this is pre Donkey Kong, is what I'm saying. Oh, this is pre Donkey Kong. Oh wow, yeah. well, you got to scan this. I want to see this. Okay, I'll I'll send it to you. It's up to, and maybe we'll put it in the podcast. But you know, now. it's it's interesting. So when we when we saw Donkey Kong, it seemed to come out of left field, but it was obviously incorporating all of these. Um, you know, things like Popeye and like what you're talking about, that magazine cover where uh, probably Miyamoto saw it and incorporated those design elements into his game. And it's yeah. actually true. This is actually true of the music later on. Like, you know, the Super Mario Brothers music sounds so iconic, but it's actually based on like a bunch of city pop music that was popular at the time. And there's yeah. there's a couple YouTube uh, uh, pieces out there like doing side-by-side analyses of famous 80s game music against especially from nintendo against city pop songs of the era and it's just interesting this stuff hit us like a like a hurricane because we didn't know any of the references oh right yeah especially yeah when when the nes hit here it just seemed like it came from the you know super mario brothers especially right yeah yeah definitely like it came from another planet yeah (laughs) where's this you know and you know it's in in japan it's like this synthesis of like you know western cartoons and like japanese like pop music and like you know tropes from anime and manga and like we didn't know any of this stuff yeah and i think that's one of the big reasons why nintendo and japanese game designers were able to kind of pick up the pieces where the american game industry imploded around 1983 and turn it into this entire vibrant new genre of of entertainment and escape in a way that the Americans hadn't been able to. 
because they had such a rich tradition of of illustrated uh, entertainment and and like they were such voracious consumers of pop music and imported cartoons and all sorts of things. So uh, yeah, that was really the fuel, I think. So picking Yokoi's narrative sort of back up, um, you know, Nintendo sort of becomes a software development company. Not, not maybe not entirely, but you know, like yeah. R and D in particular, right? Like, like Yokoi's department is essentially just a, a software development company for a while here. So, and we see uh, Yokoi working on you know some iconic games, right? Like, I believe he was the producer of Metroid. Yes. Well, so the, yeah, as famously, you know, there's there's two R and D departments at Nintendo. There's R and D one, which is headed up by Yokoi, and there's R and D two, that's headed up by Uemura. And you know, it's it's often portrayed in in Western and American media that that uh, or mass media that uh, Yamauchi did this to foster some kind of rivalry between the two. But, you know, in fact, Yokoi hired Uemura and Uemura told me when I was interviewing him that there wasn't really any rivalry per se. You know, of course, you know, you saw the other guys like have a big hit and you're like, damn, you know, when's my big hit coming? But they weren't like, you know, stealing from me. It wasn't like a, a, a toxic rivalry or anything like that, at least. So, you know, Yokoi's, Yokoi's team was developing like and it, the, the lines are really blurred because Uemura's team was 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 tasked with developing the Famicom. And at first... Yokoi's team was just all making game and watch type stuff and arcade type stuff. But then the line started blurring when the Famicom took off. And the Famicom famously, its its design spec was that it had to be able to play Donkey Kong. Right. That that was that was literally the design spec. And there was a brief period where it almost like Uemura's like I'm going to import the ColecoVision and just use that as the Nintendo Entertainment System because ColecoVision at the time had the best port of Donkey Kong. It turned out for a variety of reasons they couldn't do that. But, you know, Yokoi's hand is just like behind the scenes and everything because he had been so key in making Donkey Kong. So even when it's R&D 2 working on the Famicom, they're still kind of working with Yokoi's ideas. And at the time, the game and watches are just exploding still. Like that's Nintendo's cash cow and Donkey Kong in the arcade. So Yokoi is kind of on top. And Uemura is the the kind of underdog. And then when the Famicom comes out, that quickly flips. Mm. Because the Famicom's emergence coincided with the game and watches just the boom fading. It just it just it, the, the bubble popped. But you also have something really interesting happening there, like at exactly the time that the Famicom, or I guess a little bit after when the Famicom comes out, you have something that really solidifies that as like people should be staying home and playing video games. Yes. Are you referring to the, the change in the law? Yeah. Yeah. So like the, there were video gaming was seen as this kind of scourge of society in the early eighties in Japan. And uh, after a lot of lobbying, I think from like parents groups and PTA groups and things like that, the government passed a law that basically prohibited kids from being in video game arcades. And this coincided with the Famicom coming out. And so because, you know, 
if you told kids they couldn't play video games in arcades, it wasn't like they're, oh, okay, we're not going to play games anymore. Of course they wanted <laughs> to we're still- over that. Yeah, that's done. <laughs> done. We're done with that. Well, parents um, don't want us to do that. Okay. Cool. We're just going to go back to smoking and doing <laughs> drugs or whatever kids are supposed to do when they're not in arcades. But uh, of course they're not going to stop gaming. So what eventually, what, what actually happened is by passing this law, the government is basically compelling young kids to stay inside and play video games. It was like the best possible thing that could have happened in Nintendo. And it, it, Nintendo was really poised to take advantage of this because this is when a lot of their key early, really amazing games are coming out, like like Metroid and like a certain other game you might know of called Super Mario Brothers, um, which hugely swept Japanese society, like to the point where the Super Mario Brothers uh, strategy guide became the best selling book two years running in Japan. Like nobody, no author, no no J.K. Rowling, no Haruki Murakami has ever managed to duplicate that feat. Like nobody, super like Mario is literally the best selling author in Japan. <laughs> it's just <laughs> two years running, still like never beaten. Mario so, wrote the book. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, actually, I think it was Famitsu's editors who wrote the book. Yeah. But let's let's not let's not. <laughs> you know, it was Mario, as far as I'm concerned. So. um Let's get to Yokoi's arguably most famous invention, the the Game Boy. Yeah. So, I mean, he was in the 80s. He spent the 80s kind of like moping around, you know, watching Uemura's team get all the credit for like, you know, turning Nintendo around and like being like the kind of, you know, the celebrated geniuses of the company. And like, you know, Yokoi is like, you know, man, what's going on here? And he's, he writes about this in his in his uh, autobiography where he's, you know, and he's not mad or anything like that. It's just kind of like, you know, what am I going to do next? And what ended up being next was the technology advanced enough that he could start using active LCD screens. And he decided to try to come up with a portable. He'd always wanted to make a game and watch that you could swap games into instead of having to buy an entire new game and watch. And this was inspired heavily by the Microvision, which was something they imported to a, um, and, you know, he saw that you could swap yes. out the little things on the microvision. And of course, that screen is terrible. Just, you know. Well, not always the screen <laughs> terrible. It's like you can play, there were like five or six games, like there's block, and then there's like block, block, and then block two, and then like <laughs> block Star cubed. Trek. Block the return of block. Block, block, exactly. The revenge of block. They were all like blocky, right? And it's like, no, it's cool. It's great. Okay. Like, I love the microvision. I, I desperately wanted one as a kid. I never got it. That's probably why it turned out the way I did. Um, did you guys have it? No, I never had a microvision. I have they're, one they're, now. It's they're like tough a- to get now. <laughs> I wonder if they even still work. Uh, mine doesn't, but oh, <laughs> I mean, it was that was a that was a tough period to be a kid, you know, because you desperately wanted some kind of immersive game experience, but inevitably they were just these LCD games or like you know Atari twenty six hundred games, you know, where I, like my ET keeps falling into a pit over and over and over again. Um, and it, it really wasn't until Nintendo came around that we started getting actual home gaming experiences that rivaled what were going on in arcades. And so like Yokoi's, Yokoi's dream, and it wasn't just his, there were a lot of other companies trying to do this, was to make the video game experience portable. And uh, he had a lot of competition at the time. You know, Atari, Atari's Lynx was the arguably cutting edge. Uh, and it actually beat the Nintendo Game Boy to market, I believe. Uh, it came out like a, 
Do you remember exactly when that came yeah, out? I yeah, I think that's mean, right. It, it it did beat it to market, though. I can't remember and, exactly you know, I, how I th- much. I think Yokoi and like the other actually they they went and saw it. I I, I seem to re- recall like you know they looked at it and like it was believed that this color LCD technology would would just sweep the market, but it was really expensive and those things got Lynx's eight batteries mm-hmm. like they just. They just ate them. Like you, you had like a, like an hour of gameplay or something. It was like, and there's like 15, you know, double A batteries in there. The thing was like the size of like a, the weight of a cinder block. Um, gotta love that thing. But uh, anyway, like Yokoi is like obsessing over like, how do we make a cheap, you know, uh, or reasonably priced portable game system? And so he decided to stick with this tried and true uh, and and very reasonably priced, but not particularly cutting edge passive uh, non-backlit LCD. And he, in his autobiography, talks about how he stressed out so much over that screen that he stopped eating and he developed these like really bad like sores in his like esophagus and stomach or something like that. And like he actually was like he 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 was on the edge of like considering suicide. It was like a really, really bad time for him. And especially because, and this is just something he says in his book, but like he, he messed up. And when he was talking to, uh, I believe it was sharp about the uh, specifications of the screen and everything, he gave them like a weird uh, angle to cut it at that would have made it like significantly worse than it already was. Yeah. Um, And so he, for a while thought that they were being, you know, they were printing tens of thousands of these things. They were manufacturing all of these things with a screen that you couldn't even play. Yeah. And, and like in that same section, I believe it's where he talks about, he keeps bringing the prototypes to Yamauchi and like when Yamauchi, Yamauchi would like kind of look at it from an angle that was a little bit off. And when he couldn't see the screen clearly, he's like, no, just N-O, get out of here. And and that's what was, you know, he was desperate to come up with a screen that had a, a usable viewing angle. Now, like all of these problems have been solved. Like you can look at like an iPhone or whatever from any angle. But back then, the technology was a lot more limited. And uh, Yokoi really, really struggled to kind of color inside the lines. Like he wasn't, he wasn't trying to think outside. He was thinking outside the box in terms of application, but he wasn't thinking out, outside the box in terms of the technology. Um, he he very much was deliberately constrained to these this kind of and the, the design specs that he used. And, and part of this is because you have to make it cheaper than the Famicom, right? Yes. Like you can't sell a handheld version, a smaller machine, right? Which yes. is going to be less powerful no matter what. You can't sell it for the same amount as the Famicom or even close to the same amount yes. as the Famicom. It just doesn't look right, you no. know? Especially not back then. It's like, well, it's portable, you know? Like now we know that like smaller doesn't necessarily mean cheaper. Right. You know, like <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, wait a second, why is my iPhone costing more than like a Nintendo Switch? Like if you start looking at it that way. And of course things have changed back then. Yeah. And cost was always the, the big deal. Like Uemura told me, I was like, why did you choose these specs for the Famicom? He's like, oh, well, they told me I, it, it had to be this price. It couldn't be any more expensive than this. It had to be cheap. So it's like we think of these kind of game-changing, world-changing products, and we think of, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to imagine that the geniuses who came up with them, like, had every resource at their disposal to do it, but that's not the case. They actually had to work within very, very, very tight restrictions to, to pull these things off. And Nintendo was, you know, kind of genius as a company at skirting that line between making something that could be profitable and making something that seemed like it was really high-tech and really cool. Well, that's my doorbell. 
<laughs> did you guys hear that? Did that actually come through? Yeah, it's yeah, the did. ghost of Gunpei Yokoi. He's coming in. Come on, <laughs> come on down, man. No, sorry, it's probably, I have so many questions for you. I thought we just the FedEx driver. Um, <laughs> do you need, do you need to, to go take get that? that? No, no, no. Okay. Um, so obviously, you know, Game Boy is a success, uh, both, both from a uh, design and, and commercial perspective. Um, is there really? I don't know what Yokoi's up to between the Game Boy and the Virtual Boy. Does does anyone? He it's in the book. I mean, I think he was making he was working on some Game Boy games he, for he's sure. He's mostly just making games at that okay. point. Okay, okay. Because I don't think there's any big hardware there, and you know, I I just want to like for people who might not have been there in real time, like the the Game Boy was like revelatory. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw that thing, like I, you know, yes, the screen did suck. It was like this kind of green and blurred, but like the, the idea that you could play Super Mario Brothers, like in your hand, was just the craziest thing. Like none of us, none of us could believe it. I mean, it, we just thought it was the most amazing thing. And that the design is so timeless. You know what I mean? Yeah. That and the gray I can't and- imagine it without Tetris now, but you know, that was no. sort of a late comer even. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, getting Tetris on there, but like that, that, that game and that technology together, you know, that was, that was very much a, a new thing in the world. That was like the iPhone coming around or something. Definitely. Well, and I think it also, it's, it's, it's like the design is almost kawaii, you know, cute. Yeah. Um, you know, when you compare the links seems like something like a teenage boy would whip out to like, kind of impress his, his friends. Like, dude, check this out, man. It's all black. It's got like chrome. <laughs> it's called a lynx. That's like a, you know, a carnivore, just like me, you know, like kind of thing. Right. And then like, on the other hand, you have this, like, I'm the game boy, you know, I'm gray with these little red buttons, you know, and I'm so cute, you know, and it's so easy to see this thing wearing like a bow tie and like walking around like Hello Kitty. Yeah. And that was such a genius design move because it just it 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 was it was a cool piece of technology that didn't alienate anybody. Yeah, you, you know what and, I mean. And it was, I mean, we don't think of it as being that small today, but I mean, this was so much more portable yes. than the other systems on the market, than especially yeah. the Lynx, but the Game Gear too. I mean, yeah, yes, they're handheld, but you don't have a pocket big enough to put a Game Gear in. Well, like that, that's huge. It's impossible for me to imagine an alternate reality where Hillary Clinton is bringing an Atari Lynx on board the <laughs> Air Force One. But right. there's a great photograph of her playing the Game Boy aboard Air Force One. And like George Bush is playing uh, the Game Boy famously as he uh, uh, recovers from heart surgery. You know, I can't imagine him with like a, a you know, a PC engine mini. What was that thing called? Or, the, or like a... <laughs> The, no, the duo, duo, yes, the turbo duo. No, duo you know, was, as cool uh, as that would be, Turbo Express, right? Okay. I, as, as much as I want to imagine, like George Herbert Walker Bush playing R Type or something like that. Um, <laughs> no. no, they were. But how ironic is it what that like we're like you? You have this. You have a, a president and a first lady playing this like Soviet video game Tetris on a Japanese game system aboard Air Force One or in the White House. Like that's yeah. that's globalization right there in a nutshell. Uh you know, everything kind of started from that. The but game of course Boy really the other brought it all together. Yeah. <laughs> what what brought it all together? Oh the Game Boy just brought us all together. Oh yes. yeah. As a as a as a globe. As a species. Yeah. As a species. <laughs> um and the other thing of course, and we sort of touched on this, but it's really important to understand that like 
this thing actually lasted more than a couple of hours on yes. <laughs> on its batteries. And like, yes. if you have something that you are going to, that you're going to want to play away from home, that part is so important. And um, this is another thing that comes out of that biography, but um, Yokoi kept this comic that I think was in Fubitsu, um, that he, he clipped out and put on his wall. And it was a, uh, it was a game gear, like, introducing itself and being like i've got all these colors i'm so cool i can do all of this cool stuff and then in the middle of its speech about how great it is it shuts off because it ran out of batteries right (laughs) and also like your parents would get pissed at you batteries are expensive and it's like mom yeah it's like i need another 12 pack of d cells to like run this thing it's it's like what again you know, <laughs> and the Game Boy could like not only could the Game Boy last forever on like four triple A's, it was like indestructible. You could drop it. Yeah. You know, famously, that one got blown up in a bombing in Kuwait and is still playing. It's still it's still usable. It's it's like all melted and like charred, but it's at uh, the Rockefeller Center, the Nintendo uh, store in the Rockefeller Center, I think, or was. Yeah, until I, recently. I love the display. <laughs> It was a Nintendo Power reader submitted that photo, and I love that Nintendo went and acquired it. Yes, you know, they were like, this as is an important piece. thing we need yeah. to yes. showcase. And it literally, it's like melted. Like you can't even like, but it's amazing. <laughs> the screen didn't melt. I like it's just a crazy moment. And it and it kind of speaks to how they think of things in the future too. I mean, there have been. Uh, like the DS pretty famously had to go through like some extremely rigorous drop tests yeah. before they put that out for sale because, you know, it's got a hinge, like that thing was going to shatter. Yeah, and yeah, of course, yeah. they, they're not indestructible, but like the indestructibility of the Game Boy, I think, was kind of like, a, yeah, we should. That's important. We should. I see that the competitor systems are uh, like dying and breaking and all of that stuff. We should continue to make sure that ours are like tanks. And that comes from Yokoi's like grounding and and decades in making physical toys. Like this is a guy who was making like Lego blocks. You know, he knew that things had to be kind of durable and how kids played. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's difficult to imagine a world where Nintendo invented the Game Boy or became as, as as much of a, a fantasy powerhouse as it did without Yokoi. Um, yeah, I mean, his it, to me, his impact is, I mean, obviously the Game Boy is huge and the Game & Watch is huge and all of that stuff, um, but it's not so much the specific things he made, but the kind of philosophies he like yes. imparted on the company that they still carry today. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the lateral thinking with withered technology, but just this sort of like not forgetting that this is about play. That yes. we're, we're talking about playfulness and yes. not we're not a cutting edge technology company. We're a company of play and fun. And that is still, you know, a deeply rooted part of Nintendo today. And of course, you know, a lot of this gets passed on from Yokoi to Miyamoto, who um, Miyamoto calls Yokoi like his greatest influence. Oh, um, big senpai. Like, yeah. you know, notice, notice me, senpai. <laughs> no, but he is. He's like the big senpai of like the entire like games division there, you know? Yeah. And, and to Kelsey's point, it's like it never stopped. I mean, the we, no. you know, t- right. 20 years after the guy left the company, right? The, the we is, is absolutely uh, coming from this philosophy of, of wither technology being used in a playful way. You know, well, I think like, it's, it's who, what other video game company would have made this underpowered thing with a motion controller? Right. 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 
And it's a testament to the people who remained behind after he left and unfortunately died in 1997, I believe it was. Um, it's a testament to how much the people who he left behind, you know, respected him, that they kind of continued this philosophy and, and continue it even to the present day. You know, I mean, I think if Yokoi saw the switch, I think he would just be, you know, blown away. I, th- I think he would see it as a culmination of everything he ever wanted to do. Yeah. In a lot of ways. <laughs> the and digital it, delivery would, would, well, he would love that. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, and you know, there's only, you know, Yokoi is, is, is somebody who I think is, uh, he, he would be getting a lot more attention if he hadn't passed away. So unfortunately yeah. in that automobile accident in the late nineties, just before the internet took off, just before this first generation of gamers grew old enough to start like digging in the crate, so to speak, and learning more. Um, he right. was already Miyamoto gone. became a celebrity. Yes. And that's because he was the, the remaining big face. And yeah, yeah I mean, I think that, had the you know the late nineties and early two thousands come around and Yokoi is still alive, I think that that would have absolutely happened with him too. Well, and yeah. especially because he's independent at that point, right? Like yes. he's no longer attached to Nintendo, and right. he might have come around to, you know, I mean, this this might sound like a crappy way of putting it, but he might have come around to like wanting to use that status to further his career, right? Like, so yeah, he might oh, I'm sure actually, he would have. Yeah. So he might have gone out in public and done a lot of interviews and yeah. And this is, you know, just from a purely selfish standpoint, like I I just really wish he'd been around when I was researching uh, Pure Invention, my book Pure Invention, because it's one of the most difficult things when you are writing about pop culture and researching pop culture is that the big and the more, the bigger and more successful a company is, the less it wants to talk to anybody Mm. except on their own terms. (laughs) And Nintendo just doesn't give interviews unless it's like in service of selling a new product or something like that. They don't make anybody available to anybody. You know, if yeah, you, you watch, you have to ambush Miyamoto. You know, during yeah, you, a press tour for a new game to or talk you, about anything old. Or you need to talk to somebody who's retired, like right. Uemura son. Like right. Mr. Uemura was a fount of information because he's been retired from Nintendo for so long, and he now is a uh, he runs the. Ritsumeikan University Center for Game Preservation and Studies. And of course, uh, you know, people in Japan famously leave their companies all the time. So. <laughs> well, this is this is the thing. So like, especially in that generation, that wasn't really common to leave your company, but obviously retiring is because these gentlemen are all kind of like in their 70s now. So when I was researching, for instance, the Walkman uh, for the chapter on the Walkman in Pure Invention, Sony wouldn't talk to me. Uh, they eventually did and provided some kind of, of uh, you know, kind of PR photos of the old Walkmans and stuff that I needed. But nobody who worked on the Walkman then is still there now. They're all retired. And so I tracked those guys down and they love talking about it. They right. love talking about how they came up with a name for the Walkman or like, oh, how nobody thought this was going to be a success or whatever. So tracking down these kind of retired people. And now for everybody out there who's listening and might be a writer or whatever, now is your chance to find these people who created awesome stuff in the 70s and 80s. They're still around. You know, we need to find them and talk to them before it's too late. It's, I uh, want to know if the Game Boy name came from the Walkman. Yeah, it sure <laughs> seems that way, doesn't it? Right? It must It sure have. seems that way. <laughs> it it no really, way. really does. And like, that's the kind of thing you'll never get out of anybody. I mean, I'm sure if, no. if Yokoi was around, you would. But um, it's hard to imagine it wasn't, you know? Yeah. 
And it's funny because because they named it Game Boy, it, it still doesn't seem very masculine. Like you can be a, a woman or a girl and play with that and not feel like, you know, you're, I don't know, playing with some kind of bling blinged out like a macho device. Uh, I think that's that's really key to its success. You know, Nintendo has always been so approachable that way. And that naming Game Boy. Yeah. And even the competitors just never were able to do, I mean, I'm just even thinking about Sony with like the PSP and the Vita just are these, you know, like cutting edge looking sort yeah. of, you know, no offense to them, but they're very much like they're, they are like, this is a video game console. Yes. Serious. Yes. Uh, well, now they do, you know, the original PlayStation, the PlayStation one didn't look oh, yeah. anything I like that. that. And like, it was yeah. famously derided in the press. I remember like as a toilet seat. Remember it? It had that it had that big round CD yeah. loading tray, and I seriously remember people like dissing it as looking like a toilet. And now we don't think about that at all. But it's it's in, now they're all like black and like chromed and like grays and like this kind of like this is cool kind of uh, design philosophy. But the original PlayStation One, I think, was a kind of almost an homage to the Game Boy style. You know, it was gray, it was rounded. Well, that's what Sony knew at the time, right? It was a yeah. Nintendo Sony partnership. They to the, yes. to Sony video. Nintendo is video games, so yes. let's make something that looks like a Nintendo. Yeah, yes, and famously, Sony only greenlit it because they thought it would be a karaoke machine in most people's houses. <laughs> that's I love that story. I like, heard I, that one. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the, I mean, of course, I'm sure a bunch of, you know, calculuses went into the decision to, to green light the PlayStation, but like there was a lot of ambivalence in Sony, especially after Nintendo pulled out. There was a lot of ambivalence about whether it made, because making your own game system and like kind of jumping into the console wars is a very cash intensive sort of thing to do. Yeah. You know, it's it's a much different beast than like, let's make a game division and start making games. Like you have to make this whole ecosystem. And to, to sort of bring this back to where we were talking about uh, Yamauchi and how he was kind of pissing everyone off and ruling with an iron fist. I mean, a lot of Sony's success with that, because they didn't have their own ecosystem yet, came from the fact that Yamauchi had pissed Namco off a lot and they were yeah. looking for revenge. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> and and let's be brutally honest, sometimes, sometimes you know, as, as great as lateral thinking with Wither Technology is, that is the mindset that kept Nintendo from making the leap to CD-ROM in the early 90s. And that is why basically game companies, game designers who wanted that extra capacity and the ability to put actual recorded music into their games jumped ship from Nintendo to to PlayStation, to Sony, because they had, you know, it it offered them more opportunities to innovate. So Yamauchi's, you know, desire to have an iron fist control over everything definitely combined with that, well, let's just keep things off the shelf. There's no need to really push the limits um, started to seem really outdated in that kind of early half of the nineties and Nintendo was really struggling back then, you know? So Matt, um, you know, we're, we're, we're just talking about Yokoi today, but, uh, your, your book, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about your book and, and how, uh, Yokoi sort of ties into what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. So my, my book is is called Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. But more accurately, it's about how the entire world turned more Japanese through our encounters with what I call fantasy delivery devices, which are products that nourished our dreams and are changed our lifestyles and in so doing also transformed our realities. Things like Japanese toys or the karaoke machine, the Walkman. Nintendo products, Hello Kitty, 
um, you know, digital forms of expression like the emoji and like Tamagotchis and things like that. Uh, anonymous image boards. Uh, people think of like 4chan and 8kun and all of that as being American innovations, but they're actually all based on something that happened in Japan at the turn of the uh Twenty first century called Four Chan is American. <laughs> yeah, I know, isn't that well? Four Chan, Four Chan was founded by an American who was obsessed right. with anime, uh, which you may know. <laughs> That's another fantasy delivery device in the book. But Nintendo plays a key role in that, and uh, the the Game Boy in particular, at the very end of its lifespan, when Pokemon comes out on it, um, that's sort of a transition for America to get really big into anime. And start consuming more real time, the same sorts of fantasies the Japanese people did. And Yokoi's Game Boy was really, really key in making that happen. I don't think Pokemon would have been anywhere near as big of a hit if it had come out on some cutting edge new device that was expensive. Uh, instead, it came out on this really creaky, it was already eight years old by that point. Game Boy that everybody, the Game Boy was already an installed base. You know, you didn't have to be a cutting edge kid. Maybe you even inherited it from your older brother or sister or something like that. And that really allowed Pokemon to flourish and become the kind of first massive global Japanese pop cultural hit, um, even more so than, you know, Pac-Man or Donkey Kong or anything or Super Mario or anything like that in a really transformative way. Right. See, it's so, the original cell phone that was in everyone's pocket already. Yes. The Pokédex. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, it's hard to imagine, uh, like, you know, the smartphone as we know it today existing without the kind of lifestyle changes that were paved by the Walkman and the Game Boy. And, you know, Steve Jobs was an obsessed with Sony technology. I'm sure he studied the Game Boy, too. I mean, he, he wanted to name the iMac the Mac-Man. Uh, as an homage to Sony, and uh, he was quickly dissuaded from that. But that's how much he wanted to make a Walkman. That's how much he wanted to make a portable entertainment device, a portable escape. And you know, he he did it with the iPhone, with the uh, iPod, and he did it with the iPhone. But I, really, the Game Boy is also a key technology that kind of prepped us for that, if that makes sense. So, Matt, where can our listeners uh, find your book? Find, learn more about it. Anywhere fine books are sold. Uh, <laughs> seriously, it's a mainstream. It's a, it's a mainstream. Stuck at home, where on the internet? <laughs> uh, well, there's this place called Amazon, uh, but also your seriously, your local bookstores will carry it. Like any, you know, support your local bookstores, uh, please. Um, but it's available. It's Penguin Random House put it out, so it has very wide distribution. Uh, just look up Pure Invention: How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World and it will almost certainly bring up a uh, variety of ways for you to buy it. Um, there's also an audiobook version read by me. So you, if you like the melodious sounds of me on this podcast, you can hear even more, <laughs> many hours more recorded in literally the exact same place where I'm recording this now, my basement. <laughs> Do you remember how many hours? <laughs> oh, man, God. So like recording an audiobook is like a real stamina sport. I think it, it took three full days. Oh God! Of like six to seven hours. I, I don't think you hear the, yourself for three days, and your voice is just giving out. You know, you yeah. can't you can't read it like this. You you can't have a lot of hey whoa. You know, like like we're in our talk right now. It has to be more. You know, in the beginning was Nintendo. No, it's not written like I should have read it like that, like Gandalf style, but I didn't. Um, 
should do a different voice for every chapter. Exactly. I should have, you know, I, I should have like <laughs> done my uh, impression of Yokoi, done my impression of Mario. Yeah, I should have read. The, I should have read the entire Nintendo chapter in Mario's voice. It's amazing. No, no, no one would <laughs> ever do that. <laughs> Retire that voice. Uh, okay, how about Pikachu's voice? I could have just no. done Pika Pika Pika. <laughs> no, it's actually well, read in English. <laughs> Instead of Pikachu language. Instead of Pikachu, yes. Uh, standard standard uh, mid-Atlantic, where I'm from, Maryland uh, English. And if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore Alt. And I'm on Instagram at Alt Matt Alt. I'm on Facebook. I'm on the internet. I'm on the interwebs. Find me. Find me and interact with me. I love interacting with people. Well, Matt, um, thank you for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. Thank you for having me. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour, brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter, at Game History Hour, or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax-deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Awesome. <laughs> what is with Gilcoy's ghost keeps coming back? <laughs>